0: The floor is yours. Okay. Thank you very much, Ivo, for the introduction and also for the invite for coming over to Oxford today. It's my absolute pleasure to be here and, of course, thank you to all of you who have given up your lunch hour to come and hear me talk about my rather narrow interest of Northern Ireland. Um, so, as Eva introduced, my name's Cheryl Lother and I'm a lecturer in Criminology at Queen's University, Belfast. Um, and I think in many ways I slightly masquerade as a criminologist. My uh, work sort of co- is really very much oriented towards transitional justice uh, with a healthy dose of political science and some memory studies thrown into the mix as well. Um, and I work in Northern Ireland uh, primarily across a range of transitional issues particularly around the unaddressed legacy of the past in Northern Ireland. and I've done a lot of work um, with victims and survivors, but also with former combatants and members of the security forces in Northern Ireland. So what I'm talking about today um, is around victims and survivors, and as you can probably guess from the title there on the screen, the paper today looks at the construction and the meaning of victimhood in Northern Ireland. Whereas I know some of you will be aware, discussion on on victimhood and who's a victim of the conflict in Northern Ireland has been very sharply polarized by debates over so-called innocent and guilty victims. Um, And what is translated sometimes in practice, but also in theory, into the creation of what's called a hierarchy of victimhood. Uh, And what I want to do today is focus on sort of my five main thematic areas, so around victimhood and innocence, around victimhood agency and legitimacy. Thirdly, around victimhood agency and how we mobilise empathy. Then looking at voice and discomfort, so what are uncomfortable and what are comfortable voices around conversations on victimhood. And then finishing up by looking at the intersection between victimhood voice and responsibility in transitional contexts. Um, and I want to conclude then by drawing this together to have a look at how competing interpretations on victimhood have mapped onto, and I think in many ways influenced discussions on how to deal with the past in Northern Ireland. Um, And in particular, in terms of our failure to deal with the legacy of the conflict. So in terms of the structure of the paper, what I want to do, first of all, is give you a bit of a brief outline on the theoretical backdrop to the paper. Um, And then, just for those of you who are a little bit less familiar with the Northern Ireland context, give you an overview of some of the facts and figures on victimhood, um, and go on to have a look at how the politics of victimhood in Northern Ireland has played out in practice. So, as I said, to start off, I wanted to briefly touch on the theoretical background to this paper. And in regards to this research in particular, I was drawn to Bronwyn Lebow's work, Um, And her argument, or the way that she has, I think, framed the idea that the objective of different mechanisms of transitional justice, be that trials or truth commissions or reparations, for example, they're orientated towards creating a new imagined political community, in that we seek to perhaps neutralise or challenge or reframe some of the distortions and the challenges uh, and the problematic areas of the past. And that idea on an imagined community is obviously very much drawing on Benedict Anderson's work, uh, which if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to have a look at. But the other body of literature that's important here is the wealth of literature, as I'm sure you're all very aware, on transitional justice and victims. And I think, quite rightly so, there increasingly these questions are being raised about what transitional justice can do but also perhaps what transitional justice has done or what it should do for victims. But nevertheless, and leaving some of those critiques aside for a moment, as you can see on the screen, as Suzanne Hirsch points out, the idea of helping victims, and I guess helping victims in inverted commas, underpins a lot of the rationales for the creation of truth commissions or calls for prosecutions or projects for memorialization and commemoration, for example. Um, And for the US-based scholars, Laurel Fletcher and Harvey Weinstein, they argue that this call to help victims is part of that automatic way of seeing victims as a passive or a helpless entity. And so we try to elevate victims to this ideal position in which they're innocent and they're without flaws. And in turn, that kind of elevation or creation of the ideal innocent victim is used to motivate and used to justify moral and legal imperatives around intervening and creating programs and mechanisms to help victims or to do justice to victims after conflict. Um, and They have argued that this leads, has led to like a series of assumptions, largely untested assumptions as yet, about victims and transitional justice that at times have been accepted in a very uncritical fashion. So this idea that Transitional justice will satisfy victims' demands for justice, and it will end (coughs) cycles of impunity. We know in practice that that's not the case. That transitional justice mechanisms, say truth commissions, allow victims to narrate the truth about what they have experienced, and to be officially acknowledged as victims. Or, for example, that transitional justice will automatically promote reconciliation overcoming social divisions and stereotyping that led to victimisation in the first place, or that by acknowledging victimisation, transitional justice will facilitate healing, um, allowing victims to move on with their lives and promote reintegration back into society. We know in practice, even in respect to the last point, that actually you know, revealing is not just healing. Um, actually re-engaging with a violent, problematic past can be very traumatizing to the individual and also disruptive for communities and at the political level as well. Um, and so you know, we know, despite these kind of assumptions and these articles of faith, the reality is that in the aftermath of violent conflict, defining victimhood is not a neutral or a value-free enterprise. Um, and I think where tensions persist post conflict and where loss and victimhood can become, I think, reified and deified in quite a partial manner, victims groups and sometimes the victim identity can act as a form of imagined <coughs> community in which our hopes and our fears and our competing understandings of conflict become articulated and contested. And then the natural extension of that, as you can see at the bottom of the screen, then by extension, victim policies so on for example creating a legal definition of a victim or on truth or justice and reconciliation these attempts to deal with the past become a way of actually how we imagine the past or how we filter the past into our collective or individual memories but also how we interpret the the future and what we imagine that future to look like so that's a bit of the theoretical backdrop to this paper. But to give you more um, of a practical insight in terms of what I've been up to, this paper draws um, on over a hundred semi-structured interviews with victims and survivors of the Northern Ireland conflict. And I'm using the term victim and survivor in its broadest sense. As you'll see in a moment, the definition of a victim in Northern Ireland is an inclusive definition of a victim. Um, but the research for this project has effectively tracked my academic career to date. Um, in that some of it was completed in 2009, when I was doing my PhD research, although victims actually weren't the focus of the, my PhD thesis, it was there nonetheless. Um, and then I moved on to St Andrews, did a postdoc, which looked at the uh, delivery of services to victims and survivors in Northern Ireland and Spain. Um, And for the past few years I've been in the fortunate position of having an AHRC Early Career Grant which is explicitly focusing on the politics of victimhood in Northern Ireland. So there's a fair bit of data in the mix here and of course as you'll all know with your own research the challenge is doing justice to that data Um, and particularly when dealing with, with sensitive topics uh, allowing people's voices to speak, and giving them the space to do so, but also not doing so in a wholly uncritical fashion. Um, so in terms of like, the interviewees themselves, basically I used a largely purposeful sampling approach, in that I approached individuals on the basis of their relevance to the research questions. and I had a number of criteria. So that was people who were victims and survivors themselves, or who worked within victim and survivor organisations in Northern Ireland. Or those who delivered services or created policy on behalf of victims and survivors. Also people in positions of seniority in relevant organisations. So for example within the criminal justice system or within the police for example. Given the nature of doing any kind of post-conflict work, you also want to try to ensure adequate representation across the whole of the political spectrum. So that was, I suppose, the first approach, this purposeful sampling approach. And then when I interviewed people, quite often I would ask, "Did they have any recommendations for people who I should speak to? And so I snowballed away from that. Um, and I think the interesting thing is, if you take those sort of four cohorts of data, that what's interesting, but it's also extremely frustrating. Um, if you sit down and you put all of that data in front of you, you'll see that things like the political situation has ebbed and flowed in Northern Ireland, but the actual what people are saying in response to the question of who is a victim, or their attitudes to truth, or, or reparations, or prosecutions, that isn't changing. Um, And that is because we've had very little political progress on dealing with the past in Northern Ireland. At the moment, we don't even have a government, um, which is a source of frustration in and of itself. But also for those victims and survivors who are looking for truth or looking for justice and acknowledgement, they're not able to move forward. And we're also talking about an ageing population as well. So there are people who will die, unfortunately, before they find out about the truth of their case, or one of the things that really came to light, which is also slightly problematic if I can say that with this current phase of the research, when we'd be talking to people and they were maybe slightly elderly themselves, but they were already saying, oh, my children and my grandchildren will take up this cause, and they'll continue to fight the fight for me. So... Whether you wanted to or not, and of course some people will want to take up that mantle and take up that cause, whether you wanted to or not as a family member, you carried that with you um, and there was no uh, deviation or no freedom from that path. So it's a challenging position um, to for victims and survivors, also for policymakers and, and for academics and NGO activists who are trying to actually do some kind of decent work on the ground. Um, but also I suppose the thing as well, just to, to say briefly about the sample itself, particularly with the latter phase of the research which has funded this project here, Voice, Agency and Blame, Victimhood and the Imagined Community in Northern Ireland, that I lead with um, Professor Kieran McEvoy as a co-investigator. What we really wanted to do with that project, and particularly thinking about that theme of voice, was to not just replicate those voices that are heard time and time again, in many respects, you know, if, you, if you research really in any post-conflict society and you know the terrain well enough, you know that there's certain people that you can go to and you'll get an excellent statement on acknowledgement or you'll get an excellent statement on resistance, for example. And of course there's value to that, but we also wanted to reach out um, and give voice to those individuals who you know, don't have the media platform that some other people do. Um, and we partnered with the statutory body in Northern Ireland for Victims and Survivors, the Commission for Victims and Survivors, and they joined us on this project as in what we termed a critical friend. Um, so they guided us in terms of the, the, the sensitivity and the ethics of our research instrument, and also our approach to doing the fieldwork. And as we developed trust and relationship with the commission, they actually um, more or less handed over their contacts with uh, with. Um, and we were able to go out and reach as far as we possibly could <coughs> across Northern Ireland. Um, and with, with the result of that, it was, it was good and bad. We were able to access a lot of individuals who you wouldn't ever hear from normally. So we were able to capture those different voices at the margins, but then it also meant at the same time that sometimes you realised you were talking to people who had literally never told their story. Um, and perhaps, despite giving participant information sheets and all the caveats in advance, perhaps thought we were coming um, with counselling services or psychiatric services, which we obviously weren't. So, there's the, the challenge in there in, in reaching out and, and sort of um, respecting people's voices. So, that's really what we've been up to. Um, and with that kind of background in mind, for those of you who are a little bit less familiar with the Northern Ireland case, just wanted to give you a few facts and figures um, to give you something of the context, I think, and the experience of victimhood in Northern Ireland. So as you know, the conflict lasted from sort of 1968 to at least 1998 with the signing of the Belfast Agreement um, and the paramilitary ceasefires in 1994. Um, and that period of time saw over 3,700 fatalities, which on one hand is a huge number, but um, if you compare it to other conflicts, it doesn't sound like a huge number. But you also have to remember the size of Northern Ireland. You know We're a population of 1.5 million people. So with the result of that, sort of 3,700 fatalities, in certain areas of Northern Ireland, typically those areas which are most socio-economically deprived, where the conflict was most acutely felt, about 80% of the local population in those areas knows someone who has been killed or injured in a direct sense of direct victimhood. It's very difficult to put an, um, an accurate figure on how many people have been injured, as you would expect. But it's estimated around 50,000 people were injured. <coughs> Um, and tens of thousands of people were displaced from their homes and their communities due to intimidation and political violence. Um, And at the moment it's estimated that victims and survivors services are required for about 100,000 people in Northern Ireland but actually if you um, work it backwards on the legal definition of a victim because it's an inclusive definition of victimhood which we'll talk about in a moment actually one third of Northern Ireland's entire population is legally can be legally defined as a victim or survivor of the conflict. So you're talking about 500,000 people or one in three people. Um, and to try to address something of that legacy, since the Belfast Agreement, the Peace Deal was signed in 1998, there has been a huge growth in the number of victims' organisations working either on a single identity basis, so working, for example, in the nationalist or republican community, or working in the unionist and loyalist community, or those organisations which work on a cross-community basis. As it stands today in 2018, um, and in part, I think, speaking to the, the persistence of the past and the persistence of unaddressed needs, there's about 47 victim organisations in Northern Ireland Um, and if you add in what are termed parallel providers, so organisations and departments within the National Health Service, you're talking about 90 different organisations or units which are providing direct help to victims and survivors of the conflict right across the community. Um, But obviously that's not being without cost Um, and I think roughly speaking from 1998 to the present day, there's been something like 80 million sterling that has been invested in the victim sector in Northern Ireland. Um, And that's a combination of EU funding um, and central government money, which obviously um, the elephant in the room in the shape of Brexit um, may well put some challenges to that in the future and how things go forward at the community level. Um, But really, (coughs) accompanying this vast expansion of the victim sector in Northern Ireland has been a very profound politicisation of victimhood. Um, and while in practice, um, and in the, very much in the transitional justice literature over the last couple of years, those very static or very one-dimensional presentations of victims and combatants have been challenged uh, and rebutted in many respects. In Northern Ireland, the question of who is a victim of the conflict remains hotly contested, and it speaks to the wider debate over the causes and the origins of the conflict, which itself is a question which has actually never been solved. Um, And so the legal definition of a victim or survivor is in this piece of legislation here, the Victims and Survivors Order of 2006. (laughs) Um, And that piece of legislation itself has been a considerable site of contest, um, and it's useful just to take a look at it for a moment to illustrate some of those tensions. So in terms of who is a victim, it's black and white, basically. Um, someone who's been physically or psychologically injured, someone who provides a substantial amount of care to that individual, or someone who's been bereaved as a consequence of or a result of a conflict-related event. So you can see immediately, The legal definition of a victim or survivor of the conflict in Northern Ireland, it starts on the basis of objective need. It doesn't discriminate how you came to have that need, but it assesses and works on the basis of your need today, the 26th of February 2018. So it doesn't matter if you were um, a civilian who got caught up in a bomb explosion on your way to post a letter, or if you were actually the individual planting that bomb yourself and it, blew you, it went off early and blew you up. It works on the basis of what your need is, not how you came to have that need. Um, and because of that inclusive perspective on victimhood, um, it's been very much split along political lines, the acceptability or the unacceptability of the, def- the legal definition of a victim. Um, And really for unionist political elites who are obviously pro-state, so the Democratic Unionist Party, who I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of, or the Ulster Unionist Party, the legal definition of a victim has been a considerable source of angst for those constituencies and also for representatives of unionist victims groups as well. Because they have been extremely firm in their adherence to very rigid definitions of the terms victim and then clear blue water and then perpetrator somewhere over here. And how those definitions then um, tie into connotations of innocence and guilt. So you have the innocent victim and the guilty perpetrator and it's absolutely clear in between. There's no muddying of the waters between the two. Um, and they argue within this framing of innocent and guilty victims, only innocent victims or so called undeserving victims can actually be considered the true victims of the conflict. And so, they, for unionist political elites, and a lot of unionist victims groups as well, they have interpreted the victims and survivors order as blurring the boundaries between innocence and guilt and creating moral equivalence between what they term the innocent victim and the guilty perpetrator. But on the other side of the political divide in Northern Ireland, and I'm obviously speaking in slightly crude binary terms here in terms of nationalists and Republicans and unionists and loyalists, but for the sake of a presentation, it's sort of the easiest way to do it. Um, But for nationalists and Republicans, on the other hand, they have tended to advocate for a much more inclusive definition of victimhood and have very much rejected the suggestion that you can actually make a distinction between so-called deserving or undeserving victims. Um, And Republicans, particularly those associated with the IRA or with the political party, Sinn Féin, they have very much supported this idea of an equivalence of grief in the sense that, and it's it's a rather unfortunate phrase that has been used to illustrate this, but it's the idea that all mothers' tears are the same. So we experience grief and grief it is what it is. Um, And I think this definition, this broader, more open definition of victimhood, which is more fluid um, in construction, is very much speaks to the argument that the conflict in Northern Ireland was a political conflict, it wasn't a criminal insurrection, Um, and it also reflects the the long-held view within nationalist and republican communities that the British government and its security forces, at times in collusion with loyalist paramilitary organisations, were a source of victimisation for the nationalist and Republican community. And that's obviously a perspective that would be rejected by unionist political elites. Um, And so as these different competing perspectives on victimhood suggest then, in Northern Ireland, this kind of victim's debate, as it's become known, has really become, I think, an arena in which responsibility for the conflict is contested over competing definitions of innocent and guilt and discussions around a hierarchy of victimhood and within that hierarchy of victimhood it's where value judgments about blame and responsibility and a refusal to consider the victimhood or the hurt and the loss of the so-called other have become key elements and I think more crucially and as is played out in the media in Northern Ireland on a very frequent basis Competing moral claims to victimhood status are continually reproducing the major fault lines of the conflict itself and are effectively putting the brakes on a range of initiatives designed to deal with the past and to actually help victims and survivors to, whether healing is the right word or closure is probably not the right word either, but helping people achieve some sense of resolution or some sense of peace within their lives. Um, And just to show you what this hierarchy of victimhood looks like in practice, um, for any of you who are particularly interested in Northern Ireland, there's a really good news kind of blog site called The Detail um, and they do some excellent investigative journalism type reports. They also do excellent infographics. Um, so my students at Queen's are subjected to these sorts of pictures quite frequently. Um, but this diagram here is meant to illustrate the hierarchy of victimhood in Northern Ireland. And the irony is it's not who you would think who's positioned in the different positions in this hierarchy. So on the, for you, on the left-hand side of the diagram is the unionist or pro-state side of the house. And on the right, it's the nationalist and republican side of the political divide. Unionists do advocate for a hierarchy of victimhood in which civilians occupy a higher standing or are more, more worthy victims than members of paramilitary organisations. Republican communities, Republican political elites, in theory, or publicly, reject the idea of a hierarchy of victimhood, but they too have their own hierarchy. But actually, despite what we see in the popular press or in heated political arguments, for both sides of the political divide, it's not victims who are occupying the most important place in the hierarchy of victimhood. It's actually politicians and those who took the war, so to speak, to their communities Then victims are much lower down. So they both play politics with victimhood um, and the placing of individuals in terms of their worthiness or their deservingness or their status as victims. Um, And I think for me, this photograph here really sums up this whole debate. This photograph was taken in January 2009. Um, And it was at a a launch of a report. The group was called the Consultative Group in the Past. And the Consultative Group in the Past were mandated by the British government in 2007 to consult as widely as possible across the community in Northern Ireland um, and to come up with a report and a series of recommendations on how best to deal with the past. And they launched that report in January 2009, after a series of really intensive public consultation, the public consultation evenings, they had written submissions, they spoke to people individually or in pairs, Um, and so they got together, assembled everyone at a large hotel in Belfast to launch the report. There were 31 recommendations in their report on how best to deal with the past. One of the recommendations was for what was known as a recognition payment. It was essentially a form of symbolic but also slightly practical reparation in that for anyone who is a victim of the conflict under the Inclusive Victims and Survivors Order, the Consultative Group of the Past, based on their engagement and based on their interaction and consultation with, across the community in Northern Ireland, that anyone who is a victim or survivor would receive a £12,000 recognition payment. Now this report was launched on the Monday um, and on the Friday before that, the media got hold of this one recommendation. There was only one recommendation out of 31 um, and it was leaked in the media and it caused immediate uproar because it was going to be paid to anyone who was classed as a victim or survivor. Uh, And I was doing my PhD at this time and I was going to the launch and I remember quite casually walking down the main road in Belfast and I had my cup of coffee in my hand by thinking, this is really good, I'm a PhD researcher, blah, blah, And <laughs> suddenly I was aware of an absolute media scrum outside the hotel um, and people who were very visibly distressed out placarding and um, it, like emotions were as high and as tight as they could have been because of this one recognition and because of the fact of the politics of victimhood in Northern Ireland. And so I was there and it took some, you can actually look up on YouTube, you can see some of the videos from that day and it's extremely distasteful. It took some time before the chairs of the Consultative Group in the past could actually get order within the room to begin their presentation. Uh, But what you saw and what this picture typifies were individuals who had been traumatized or her victims of the conflict, and who were effectively re-traumatised by this proposal and the way the media handled it, were literally screaming at one another. Um, And in this photograph here, this lady, her parents were killed in an IRA bombing, and the gentleman on the right, his brothers, two brothers were killed by the British Army. So two individuals from opposite sides of the political divide in Northern Ireland literally screaming at one another and that morning that launch was just full of different scenes like this but also being played out in front of the media and the media literally running up and down the aisles in the room capturing that hurt and pain um, but it's just one of many, that photograph is just one of many scenes that day when I think victims groups and you know, their various members were basically screaming at one another and with some voices being much more privileged than other voices and essentially dominating that debate. Because if you speak to lots of victims and survivors now, they will say, actually, that £12,000, I could have left it as a legacy for my granddaughter to use for university, or actually that would have helped me get some mobility aids to move around the house a little bit more easily with. But the politics of victimhood took over and all the other 30 recommendations in that report have never been touched since. So it's about the power of the politics of victimhood here. Um, and I think you can see that in this quote here. Um, in, this, in what should this individual who is a victim himself, um, but also a well-respected victim's campaigner in Northern Ireland. And he's saying "You know, what should have been a peaceful healing day ended in complete and utter disaster. Um, and how that politics of victimhood has actually curtailed progress on any of these legacy issues since. Um, And the interesting thing is, actually, we'll talk a little bit about this later, if you put the text of the report of the Consultative Group in the past on the table, it wasn't touched then for another four years when the US diplomat Richard Haas came over to Northern Ireland and put forward a series of recommendations. That fell apart at the 11th hour, and now we have the Stormont House Agreement. If you put them all on the table side by side... They actually get thinner and thinner and thinner. So the report in the Consultative Group in the past is over 100 pages. I think Richard Haas' report is about 14 pages, or 30 pages maybe, and the Stormont House Agreement you're down to about six pages on legacy issues. So all the time the conversation is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But actually, if you look at the detail, the names of the different proposed legacy bodies are different, but the detail and the makeup of those bodies is exactly the same. So what was proposed in 2009 had strong legs, but got eaten by the politics of victimhood. So to start thinking about this in a more thematic way then, the first theme that I wanted to talk about was this relationship between victimhood, innocence and blame. And obviously the term innocent victim, not only is it often used to describe the non-combatant status of an individual, but as Diane Enns argues in her books The Violence of Victimhood, Claiming innocence, as you would expect, is also a natural and expected reaction to traumatic loss. But I think what is problematic about this kind of cleaving to innocence is the idea, is the fact that innocence is very often linked to its binary opposition or the calibrations of blame and blamelessness. And so claiming innocence, while in many cases it is empirically correct, sometimes claiming innocence can actually be a way to avoid guilt and shame and responsibility. And it can so easily then facilitate the construction of politically polarised hierarchies of victimhood between these so-called deserving or non-deserving victims. And so claiming innocence can really quickly become a way to avoid guilt or shame or responsibility. And I think these dynamics around innocence and blame are particularly acute in places like Northern Ireland. Where the meaning of victimhood is integrally related to the meaning of the conflict and the still contested meaning of that conflict. And so you can see here from one of our interviewees what they said. That actually victimhood is not about the people that were killed. It's about the nature of what unfolded over four decades. That you were wrong and we were right. So it's not about hurt or loss or trauma or unanswered questions. It's about proving legitimacy and justification for your cause. But within that bitter contest then over innocent and guilty victims and the argument particularly from unionist and loyalist quarters that only innocent victims are the true victims of the conflict. As one of our other interviewees said then, the real tragedy is that so many voices get lost in this debate because if they don't fit for political purposes or you can't make political gain out of them, they just don't get picked up and they don't actually get a chance to articulate their own experiences or their own hopes and desires for the future. Um, and I think very closely related to this polarisation of victimhood or the, polar, the use of innocence is how claiming victimhood can also be a way to manufacture legitimacy. Um, and it's part of that sense of avoiding blame and responsibility. Claiming victimhood can be a way for competing parties to a conflict to, I think, legitimise and present some kind of moral justification for their actions. But also for people who work in victims' groups. And obviously not all victims' organisations, and we see in Northern Ireland, but many other post-conflict or transitional settings, victims' organisations who do tremendously transformative work. But thinking about some of those groups that I'm very familiar with in Northern Ireland, that sometimes they've acted in a purely political manner. And in a way that has actually been quite damaging to their members, for them, claiming victimhood then can become a way to legitimise their actions and to maintain their own position within the communities. And essentially, it's very hard to challenge people on that because they may well be funded, they're providing a service, but also how do you challenge someone over their claim to victimhood? And I think the darker side of that that we have seen numerous times during the conflict and the peace process in Northern Ireland, is that sometimes people who have claimed victimhood actually get away with saying things that maybe are sectarian or or racist or verging on hate crime, that if they weren't victims, they wouldn't get away with saying that. But again, how do you challenge that? Um, And so you can see the frustration then that this is engendered on the screen. Um, This individual Sir Kenneth Bloomfield was a very senior civil servant in Northern Ireland um, and at one time was very much involved in the design and the delivery of victim services. And basically what he is talking about is how we have created a victim's industry in Northern Ireland where people use the title of victim um, and maybe some of them are not injured themselves so that's not necessarily a criteria but they are cleaving to that claim of victimhood for reasons of standing or finance or power and position within their communities. Um, And I think, again, very much overlapping with this relationship or this idea of agency and legitimacy is how we (laughs) we mobilise empathy or what the South African scholar Sipo Madagazi has argued or what he calls the creation of transitional justice entrepreneurs who steal the pain of victims. Um, And I think if we step backwards for one moment, um, we can see very clear parallels between the transitional justice context and domestic criminal justice context. Um, And particularly for Niles Christie's work, um, the very famous work in the 1970s on the theft of conflict by lawyers, um, and which in that work he criticised how victims' voices are often picked out they're reappropriated and then re presented to suit the aims of the prosecution. So their voices are used in a very instrumental fashion. But we can also see exactly the same parallels in transitional justice settings, where either local community actors or local political actors claim to know and claim to be able to speak for victims of past atrocities. And obviously, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes we all need an advocate and we all need someone to work on our behalf. But at the same time, it risks re-silencing victims, it risks negating their potential for agency, and it can reproduce a sense of powerlessness. And it may lead, as at least one of our interviews suggested, that the victim actually becomes a secondary interest, and the group itself and its politics become the primary concern. But it might also amount to a form of victim prostitution, again, borrowing from domestic victimology debates, whereby the most vulnerable voices are stolen and projected into the public sphere because of the political message that they carry. And then they're dropped like that when the moment of political interest has passed, obviously doing nothing for that individual's healing process, but also not doing anything to contribute to a more reconciled and a more respectful society either. And in practical terms, then, this again has created or facilitated the creation of a so-called victims' industry. Where Michael Gallagher here, um, I love this quotation, it's 14 years old now, he's criticising the little lot of victim scripts looking for grants who are like vultures feeding on the dead and injured. Michael Gallagher himself, um, he lost his own son in the OMA bombing in 1998. Uh, and he lost his brother during the conflict. So this is certainly not someone that is not experienced hurt and loss firsthand uh, and is not involved in, in trying to provide services and support for victims and survivors. So it's someone with as much right as anybody else to make that kind of statement. But while voice and agency you know, can and obviously have been, I mean, exploited for political ends, as has been really well discussed, I think particularly in respect to the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the decisions as to which victims' voices are heard and the ways in which those voices are either recorded, or edited, or performed, or broadcast, they reflect choices that are made by those who are managing that transitional process. So, for example, in South Africa, as I'm sure lots of you are familiar with, those victims who wanted to speak truth to reconciliation, rather than engage in like, reconciliatory or forgiving accounts of the past, their voices went largely unheard, because they articulated something that was uncomfortable, and it didn't fit in with that macro-narrative in South Africa about reconciliation. Um, But in other cases, then, victims and their experiences might actually challenge privileged political positions, or privileged positions of innocence and blame, challenging those legitimising narratives. And I think we can see that really clearly again in Northern Ireland, in regards to how victimhood has been constructed to silence the more uncomfortable voices. Um, And I think there's two main communities of victims who are particularly affected by this in Northern Ireland. And understandably, because of their experience of victimhood and their subsequent silencing, they are communities and individuals who are very hard to reach. Um, And the first of those communities are members of the nationalist and republican community who have been victims of republican paramilitaries. The second of those constituencies then are members of the unionist or loyalist community, who have been victims of state violence, so being a victim of your own community. Um, And I think you can see something of that silencing here in this quotation. And I think, you know, being so far marginalised, much more work needs to be done on the ground to bring out those voices and create a safe space in which people can actually articulate their trauma. The final theme, then, that I wanted to talk about, or to explore in a little bit more detail, is the relationship between victimhood voice and political responsibility. Um, This photograph hasn't reproduced in in all its glory, I'm afraid, Um, but some of you may have caught the recent scandal in Northern Ireland. This individual uh, was an elected representative for the main Republican political party Sinn Féin, Barry McElduff. And he's in a shop balancing a loaf of bread on his head. It's um, a a local baker's company called King's Mills. But also King's Mills was the site of one of the worst atrocities of the conflict, where 10 Protestant workmen were returning home from work one evening in a minibus, and they were taken out of their minibus, lined up and shot dead by Republican paramilitaries. So Kingsmill is not only um, a place where bread is made, but it's also a site of absolute tragedy and unaddressed issues of truth and justice. So not only do you have uh, a member of the opposing political party pulling a-, a stunt in a local shop with a loaf of Kingsmill's bread on his head, but he also did it on the anniversary of the Kingsmill atrocity, okay? So there is something huge in there, a voice and around responsibility Um, and we could say that he has perhaps taken some responsibility for that because he has stepped down from his elected position but undoubtedly this caused huge hurt and trauma to the families of the victims of Kings Mills. But what I'm also interested in as well is responsibility amongst victims and survivors themselves Um, and I think we can see that operating at two different levels in Northern Ireland. In the first is the idea that just as victims can be moral beacons capable of facilitating social healing, victims can also act as spoilers, (coughs) whose desire for maybe retributive justice or revenge can sometimes derail peace processes. Um, And these themes about victims as moral beacons and spoilers have been taken up by one of my colleagues, the sociologist Professor John Brewer. Um, And while we don't have time to go into that in any detail today, he argues, and he's obviously very mindful. Um, of what might be a legacy of hurt and suffering. The victim and survivor group should also be made as accountable for the future as the rest of society is. Um, And I think you can see that quite clearly on the quotation here on the screen from uh, a member, a victim himself, but also the leader of a prominent victims' organization in Northern Ireland. He says, what I don't like is the mollycoddling of victims' organizations. You know, they should be treated in the same way as anybody else. Um, But also I think what he's saying here is, you know, he's pushing this idea that victims organisations who engage in very overt politics or very overt politicisation of victims' issues uh, and a politics which at times can come above their original aims and objectives um, and, you know, the hurtful and damaging rhetoric that can go with that, then people should absolutely be held accountable for that. But on another level, as one of our other interviews suggested, actually, Maybe there's a broader responsibility on all of us as a society to actually complicate the past and to break down these polarizations and create a space where we can have those more challenging conversations so that we, as he said, we no longer collude in the notion that we're, that there were just bad guys. So to try to tie all of this together then... Um, As I said, over the last number of years, the last nine years actually now, um, there's been a range of initiatives in Northern Ireland to try to deal with the past, essentially looking at creating some kind of Northern Ireland type truth commission body. Um, The consultative group in the past failed, as we talked about earlier, on the proposal for the £12,000 payment. Richard Haas and Megan O'Sullivan failed, literally Um, at about midnight on New Year's Eve a couple of years ago, the whole thing just crumpled. Then we had the Stormont House Agreement in 2014, and it's designed to deal with the outstanding issues of the peace process. So not just the past, but also issues around flags and emblems and parades and cultural war type issues. Again, it hasn't gone anywhere because we haven't had a government for the last year. Um, And for any of you who track Northern Ireland politics, The latest round of talks collapsed just last week or 10 days ago. So there's absolutely no progress politically. But obviously victims and survivors are still remaining in that vacuum. And as I said, it's an aging population. And every time an initiative like this comes up, inevitably people's hopes and expectations rise. And then they're dashed again. And that sets people further backwards each time. Um, But just to have a look at what the Stormont House Agreement does propose in terms of dealing with the past. There'd be several distinct truth recovery bodies. A historical investigations unit, which would have a sort of slight criminal justice focus. An independent commission on information retrieval, which is a sealed body protected by limited immunity from prosecution, where people with information about the past can effectively store that information an oral history archive and then an implementation and reconciliation group which will look at thematic issues across the conflict as a whole. Plus also improved services for victims and survivors, particularly around provision of mental health services. But as I said, you know, no, no government, no working political bodies has meant no, no progress. But also there's a huge amount that's unsaid in the Stormont House Agreement. So for example, Any time there's been talks around legacy issues, the British government wants to impose what they call a national security caveat, which would govern the flow of information in and out of the different legacy bodies. The thing with national security is it's not defined. If you look on it by MI5, national security can be whatever the government of the day decides national security is. So you can pretty much guarantee that a lot of that information coming out of government archives will be redacted. Also, there's issues around creating a statute of limitations for members of the security forces. Still, we don't have satisfactory sort of consensus on the legal definition of a victim, or, for example, a pension for those who were se- seriously injured by the conflict has been proposed, and there's been a tremendous amount of work done on that. It's been dropped from the recent rounds of discussions on dealing with the past. So I think really the concern is That this need to perpetuate the politics of victimhood um, and to keep those very binary constructions around innocent and guilty victims will actually curtail meaningful progress on dealing with the past. And that is me. Thank you.